Section 3 of The Great Events by Famous Historians This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez The Great Events by Famous Historians Edited by Charles F. Horn Rossiter Johnson and John Rudd Section 3 Germanicus in Germany A.D. 13-16 to 16, by Tacitus Part 2 Germanicus handed over the second and fourteenth of the legions which he had brought in ships to Publius Vitellius to conduct them by land that his fleet thus lightened might sail on the shoaly sea or run aground with safety when the tide ebbed vitellius at first marched without interruption while the ground was dry or the tide flowed within bounds presently the ocean began to swell by the action of the northwest wind upon it and also by the influence of the equinoxal constellation at which season the sea swells most. The troops were miserably harassed and driven about. The lands were completely inundated. The sea, the shore, the fields had one uniform face. No distinction of depths from shallows, of firm from treacherous footing. They were overturned by billows, absorbed by the eddies, beasts of burden baggage and dead bodies floated among them and came in contact with them the several companies were mixed at random wading now breast high now up to their chin sometimes the ground failing them they fell some never more to rise their cries and mutual encouragements availed them nothing the noise of water drowning them. No difference between the coward and the brave, the wise and the foolish. None between circumspection and haphazard, but all were involved in the sweeping torrent. Vitellius at length, having by great exertion gained the higher ground, withdrew the legions thither, where they passed the night without fire and without food, many of them naked or lamed, not less miserable than men enclosed by an enemy, for even such had the resource of an honorable death, while these must perish ingloriously. Daylight restored the land, and they marched to the river Unsingis, where Germanicus had gone with his fleet, the legions were then embarked, while rumor reported that they were sunk. Nor was their escape believed, until Germanicus and the army were seen to return. Stertinius, who had been sent before to receive the submission of Sigimar, the brother of Sagestes, had now brought him and his son to the city of the Eubians. Both were pardoned, the father promptly the son with more hesitation, because he was said to have insulted the corpse of Varus. For the rest, Spain, Italy and the Gauls 
vied in supplying the losses of the army, offering arms, horses, money, whatever each had at hand. Germanicus, applauding their zeal, accepted only the horses and arms for the war. With his own money he assisted the soldiers, and to soften by kindness also the memory of the late disaster, he visited the wounded, extolled the exploits of individuals, and looking at their wounds with hopes encouraged some, with a sense of glory animated others, and by affability and attention confirmed them all in devotion to himself and to his service. Between the Romans and the Cheruscans flowed the river Visurgis. On its bank stood Arminius with the other chiefs, inquiring whether Germanicus was come, and being answered that he was there, he prayed leave to speak with his brother. This brother of his was in the army. His name, Flavius, remarkable for his fidelity, and for the loss of an eye under Tiberius. Permission was granted. Flavius, advancing, was saluted by Arminius, who, having removed his own attendants, requested that the archers ranged upon our bank might retire. When they are gone, how came you, he asked his brother, by that deformity in your face? The brother, having informed him where and in what fight, he desired to know what reward he had received. Flavius answered, increase of pay, the chain, the crown, and other military gifts, which Arminius treated with derision as the vile wages of servitude. After that they began in different strains. Flavius urged the Roman greatness, the power of Caesar, the severe punishment inflicted on the vanquished, and the clemency vouchsafed to those who submitted, that neither the wife nor the son of Arminius was treated as captive. Arminius to this opposed the claims of country, their hereditary liberty, the domestic gods of Germany, their mother, who joined in his prayer that he would not prefer the character of a deserter and a betrayer of his kinsmen and connections, in short of his race, to that of their general. From this they gradually proceeded to invectives. Nor would the interposition of the river have restrained them from an encounter, had not Stertinius running to him held back Flavius, full of rage and calling for his arms and his horse. On the opposite side was seen Arminius, menacing furiously and proclaiming battle. For most of what he said in this dialogue was in Latin, having, as a general of his countrymen, served in the Roman camp. Next day the German army stood in order of battle beyond the Visurgis. Germanicus, who thought it became not a general to endanger the legions, in the passage without bridges and guards, made the horse ford over. They were led by Stertinius and Emilius, one of the principal centurions, who entered the river at distant places to divide the attention of the foe. 
Cariovalda, captain of the Batavians, dashed through where the stream was most rapid, and was by the Cheruscans, who feigned flight, drawn into a plain surrounded by woods. Then, starting up at once and pouring upon him on every side, they overthrew those who resisted, and pressed after those who gave way, who, at length forming themselves into a circle, were assailed by some hand to hand, by others were annoyed by missiles. Cariovalda, having long sustained the fury of the enemy, exhorted his men to break through the assailing bands in a solid body. He himself charged into the thickest and fell under a shower of darts, his horse also being killed, and many nobles fell around him. The rest were saved by their own bravery, or by the cavalry under Stertinius and Amelius, which came up to their assistance. Germanicus, having passed the Visurgis, learned from a deserter that Arminius had marked out the place of battle, that more tribes also had joined him at a wood sacred to Hercules, and would attempt to storm our camp by night. The deserter was believed, the enemy fires were in view, and the scouts, having advanced toward them, reported that they heard the neighing of horses and the murmur of a mighty and tumultuous host. Being thus upon the eve of a decisive battle, Germanicus thought it behooved him to learn the sentiments of the soldiers and deliberated with himself how to get at the truth. The reports of the tribunes and centurions were oftener agreeable than true. The freedmen had servile spirits. Friends were apt to flatter. If an assembly were called there, too, the council proposed by a few was carried by the clamorous plaudits of the rest. The minds of the soldiers could, then, only be thoroughly known when, by themselves, free from all restraint, and over their mess, they gave unreserved utterance to their hopes and fears. At nightfall, taking the path leading by the place of divination, he went out with a single attendant, a deerskin covering his shoulders, and proceeding by a secret way where there were no sentinels, entered the avenues of the camp, stationed himself near the tents, and eagerly listened to what was said of himself while one magnified the imperial birth of his general, another his graceful person, very many his firmness, condescension, and the evenness of his temper, whether seriously occupied or in moments of relaxation, and they confessed that their sense of his merits should be shown in battle, protesting at the same time that those traitors and violators of peace should be made a sacrifice to vengeance and to fame. In the meantime, one of the enemy, who understood Latin, rode up to the palisades, and with a loud voice offered in the name of Arminius to every deserter a wife and land, and as long as the war lasted, a hundred sesterces a day. 
this affront kindled the wrath of the legions. Let day come, they cried. Battle should be given. The soldiers would themselves take the land of the Germans, lead away wives by right of conquest. They, however, welcomed the omen, and considered the wealth and women of the enemy their destined prey. About the third watch an attempt was made upon the camp, but not a dart was discharged, as they found the cohorts planted thick upon the works, and nothing neglected that was necessary for a vigorous defense. Germanicus had the same night a cheering dream. He thought he sacrificed, and in place of his own robe, besmeared with the blood of the victim, received one fairer from the hands of his grandmother, Augusta. Elated by the omen and the auspices being favorable, he called an assembly and laid before them what in his judgment seemed likely to be advantageous and suitable for the impending battle. He said that to the Roman soldiers, not only plains but with due circumspection, even woods and forests were convenient. The huge targets, the enormous spears of the barbarians, could never be wielded among trunks of trees and thickets of underwood, shooting up from the ground like Roman swords and javelins, and armor fitting the body, that they should reiterate their blows and aim at the face with their swords. The Germans had neither helmet nor coat of mail. Their bucklers were not even strengthened with leather or iron, but mere contextures of twigs, and boards of no substance flourished over with paint. Their first trunk was armed with pikes in some sort. The rest had only stakes burned at the end or short darts. And now to come to their persons, as they were terrific to sight, and vigorous enough for a brief effort, so they were utterly impatient of wounds, unaffected with shame for misconduct and destitute of respect for their generals, cowards in adversity, in prosperity despisers of all divine, of all human laws. If weary of marches and sea voyages, they wished an end to these things. By this battle it was presented to them. The Elbe was no nearer than the Rhine. There was nothing to subdue beyond this. They had only to place him, crowned with victory, in the same country which had witnessed the triumphs of his father and uncle, in whose footsteps he was treading. The ardor of the soldiers was kindled by this speech of the general, and the signal for the onset was given. Neither did Arminius or the other chiefs neglect solemnly to assure their several bands that these were Romans, the most desperate fugitives of the Varian army, who, to avoid the hardships of war, had put on the character of rebels who, without any hope of success, were again braving the angry gods, and exposing to their exasperated foes, some of them backs burdened with wounds, 
others' limbs enfeebled with the effects of storms and tempests. Their motive for having recourse to a fleet and the pathless regions of the ocean was that no one might oppose them as they approached or pursue them when repulsed. But when they engaged hand to hand, vain would be the help of winds and oars after a defeat. The Germans needed only remember their rapine, cruelty and pride. Was any other course left them than to maintain their liberty, and if they could not do that, to die before they took a yoke upon them? The enemy thus inflamed and calling for battle, were led into a plain called Idistavisus. It lies between the Visurgis and the hills, and winds irregularly along, as it is encroached upon by the projecting bases of the mountains, or enlarged by the receding banks of the river. At their rear rose a majestic forest, the branches of the trees shooting up into the air, but the ground clear between their trunks. The army of the barbarians occupied the plain and the entrances of the forest. The Cheruscans alone sat in ambush upon the mountain, in order to pour down from thence upon the Romans when engaged in the fight. Our army marched thus, the auxiliary Gauls and Germans in front, after them the foot archers, next four legions and then Germanicus with two Praetorian cohorts and the choice of the cavalry. Then four legions more, and the light foot with the mounted archers, and the other cohorts of the allies. The men were on the alert and in readiness, so that the order of march might form the order of battle when they halted. As the bands of Cheruscans, who had impatiently rushed forward, were now perceived, Germanicus commanded the most efficient of his horse to charge them in the flank and Stertinius with the rest to wheel round to attack them in the rear, and promised to be ready to assist them at the proper moment. Meanwhile an omen of happiest import appeared. Eight eagles, seen to fly toward the wood and to enter it, caught the eye of the general. Advance, he cried, follow the Roman birds, follow the tutelar deities of the legions. At once the foot charged, and the cavalry sent forward attacked their flank and rear, and, strange to relate, the two divisions of their army fled opposite ways, that in the wood ran to the plain, that in the plain rushed into the wood. The Cheruscans between both were driven from the hills, among them Arminius formed a conspicuous object, while with his hand, his voice, and the exhibitions of his wounds, he strove to sustain the fight. He had vigorously assaulted the archers, and would have broken through them, had not the cohorts of the Retians, the Vindelicians, and the Gauls advanced to oppose him. However, by his own personal effort and the impetus of his horse, he made good his passage. 
his face besmeared with his own blood to avoid being known. Some have related that the cautions, who were among the Roman auxiliaries, knew him and let him go. The same bravery or stratagem procured in Guomar his escape. The rest were slain on all hands. Great numbers attempting to swim the Visurgis perished either by the darts showered after them, or the violence of the current, or, if they escaped these, they were overwhelmed by the weight of the rushing crowd and the banks which fell upon them. Some, seeking an ignominious refuge, climbed to the tops of trees, and, concealing themselves among the branches, were shot in sport by the archers, who were brought up for the purpose. Others were dashed against the ground as the trees were felled. This was a great victory, and withal achieved without loss on our side. The slaughter of the foe, from the fifth hour of the day until night, filled the country for ten miles with carcasses and arms. Among the spoils chains were found, which, sure of conquering, they had brought to bind the Roman captives. The soldier saluted Tiberius as Imperator, upon the field of battle, and, raising a mount placed upon it, after the manner of trophies, the German arms with the names of all the vanquished nations inscribed below. This sight filled the Germans with more anguish and rage than all their wounds, afflictions, and overthrows. They who were just now prepared to abandon their dwellings and retire beyond the Elbe, meditate war and grasp their arms. People, nobles, youth, aged, all rushed suddenly upon the Roman army in its march and disorder it. Lastly, they chose a position shut in by a river and a forest, the inner space being a confined and humid plain. The forest, too, surrounded with a deep marsh, except that the Angrivari had elevated one side by erecting a broad mound to part them and the Cheruscans. Here their foot were posted. Their horse were concealed among the neighboring groves, that they might be on the rear of the legions when they had entered the wood. Nothing of all this was a secret to Germanicus. He knew their councils, their stations, their overt movements and their concealed measures, and turn their subtlety to the destruction of themselves. To Seius Tubero, his lieutenant, he committed the horse and the plain. The infantry he so formed that part might pass the level approaches into the wood, and the rest force their way up the rampart. Whatever was arduous he reserved to himself, the rest he committed to his lieutenants. Those who had the even ground to traverse easily forced an entrance, but they who were to storm the rampart were battered from above, as if they had been assaulting a wall. The general perceived the inequality of this close encounter, 
and drawing off the legions a small distance, ordered the slingers and engineers to discharge their missiles and dislodge the enemy. Immediately darts were poured from the engines, and the defenders of the barrier, the more conspicuous they were, with the more wounds were bitten down. Germanicus, having taken the rampart, first forced his way at the head of the Praetorian cohorts into the wood, and there fought foot to foot. Behind the enemy was the morass, behind the Romans the mountains or the river. No room for either to retreat, no hope but in valor, no safety but in victory. The Germans were not inferior in courage, but in their method of fighting and the nature of their arms, as their vast numbers, hampered in narrow places, could not push forward, nor recover their immense spears, nor practice their usual assaults and rapid motions, being compelled by their crowded condition to adopt a stationary manner of fighting. On the contrary, our soldiers, with shields fitted to their breasts, and their hands firmly grasping their sword hilts, could gush the brawny limbs and naked faces of the barbarians, and open themselves away with havoc to the enemy. Besides, the activity of Arminius now failed him, being either exhausted by a succession of disasters, or disabled by his recent wound. Nay, Ingiomer too, who flew from place to place throughout the battle, was abandoned by fortune rather than courage. Germanicus, to be easier known, pulled off his helmet, and exhorted his men to prosecute the slaughter. They wanted no captives, he said. The extermination of the people alone would put an end to the war. It was now late in the day, and he drew off a legion to pitch a camp. The rest glutted themselves till night with the blood of the foe. The horse fought with doubtful success. Germanicus, having in a public harangue, praised his victorious troops, raised a pile of arms with this proud inscription, that the army of Tiberius Caesar, having subdued the nations between Rhine and Elbe, had consecrated these memorials to Mars, to Jupiter, and to Augustus. Of himself he made no mention, either fearful of provoking envy, or that he felt satisfied with the consciousness of his own merit. He next charged Stertinius with the war among the Angriverians, and he would have proceeded, had they not made haste to submit. Approaching as supplicants and making a full confession of their guilt, they received pardon without reserve. The summer being now far advanced, some of the legions were sent back into winter quarters by land. The greater part Caesar put on board the fleet, and conveyed them along the Amicia to the ocean. The sea, at first serene, resounded only with the oars of a thousand ships, or their impulse under the sail. But presently a shower of hail poured down from a black mass of clouds. 
At the same time, storms raging on all sides in every variety. The billows rolling now here, now there, obstructed the view and made it impossible to manage the ships. The soldiers, too, unaccustomed to the perils of the sea, in their alarm embarrassed the mariners, or helping them awkwardly rendered unavailing the services of the skillful. After this, the whole expanse of air and sea was swept by a southwest wind, which, deriving strength from the mountainous regions of Germany, its deep rivers and boundless tract of clouded atmosphere, and rendered still harsher by the rigor of the neighboring north, tore away the ships, scattered and drove them into the open ocean or upon islands, dangerous from precipitous rocks or the hidden sandbanks which beset them. Having got a little clear of these, but with great difficulty, the tide turned, and flowing in the same direction as that in which the wind blew, they were unable to ride at anchor or bail out the water that broke in upon them. Horses, beasts of burden, baggage, even arms were thrown overboard to lighten the holds of the vessels, which took in water at their sides and from the waves running over them. Around them were either shores inhabited by enemies, or a sea so vast and unfathomable as to be supposed to be the limit of the world and unbounded by any land. Part of the fleet was swallowed up, Many ships were driven upon remote islands, where, without a trace of civilized humanity, the men perished through famine, or were kept alive by the carcasses of horses that were dashed upon the same shore. The galley of Germanicus alone reached the coast of the Cautians, where, during the whole period of his stay, both day and night, Amid the rocks and prominences of the shore, he reproached himself as being the author of such overwhelming destruction, and was hardly restrained by his friends from destroying himself in the sea. At last, with the returning tide and favoring gale, the shattered ships returned, almost all destitute of oars or with garments spread for sails and some towed by those which were less disabled. He repaired them hastily and dispatched them to search the islands. By this diligence the greater part were recovered. Many were by the Angriverians, our new subjects, redeemed from their more inland neighbors and restored, and some, driven into Great Britain, were sent back by the petty kings each according to the remoteness of the region he had returned, from recounted the wonders he had witnessed, the impetuosity of whirlwinds, strange birds, sea monsters of ambiguous form between man and beast, things either seen or fancied from the effects of fear. Intelligence of this wreck animated the Germans with hopes of renewing the war, which Germanicus, perceiving, resolved to check. 
he commanded Caius Silius with 30,000 foot and 3,000 horse to march into the country of the Catians. He himself, with a greater force, invaded the Marcians, where he learned from Molovendus, their general, lately taken into our subjection, that the eagle of one of Varus's legions was hidden underground, in a neighboring grove kept by a slender guard. Instantly two parties were dispatched, one to face the enemy and draw him from his position, the other to march around upon the rear and open the ground. Success attended both. Hence Germanicus, advancing toward the interior with greater alacrity, laid waste the country and destroyed the effects of the late disaster. The foe, wherever they engaged, were instantly defeated. Nor, as was learned from the prisoners, were they ever more dismayed. The Romans, they exclaimed, are invincible. No calamities can subdue them. They have wrecked their fleet, their arms are lost. Our shores are covered with the bodies of their horses and men, and yet they have invaded us with their usual spirit, with the same firmness, and as if their numbers were increased. The army was thence led back into winter quarters, full of joy to have balanced by this prosperous expedition their misfortunes at sea and by the bounty of Germanicus their happiness was increased, since to each sufferer he paid as much as he declared he had lost. Neither was it doubted but that the enemy was tottering and concerting measures for obtaining peace, and that the next summer would terminate the war. Tiberius, by frequent letters, pressed him to come home to the triumph decreed him, he urged also that he had experienced enough of events and casualties. He had indeed fought great and successful battles, but he must likewise remember his losses and calamities, which, however, owing to wind and waves and no fault of the general, were yet great and grievous. He himself had been sent nine times into Germany by Augustus, and effected much more by policy than arms. It was thus he had brought the Sigambrians into subjection, thus the Suevians. Thus King Marobodus had been obliged to submit to terms, the Cherascans too, and the other hostile nations. Now the Roman honor was vindicated, might be left to pursue their own intestine feuds. Germanicus besought one year to accomplish his conquest, but Tiberius assailed his modesty with fresh importunity by offering him another consulship, the duties of which would require his presence. He added that if the war were still to be prosecuted, he should leave materials for the fame of his brother, Drusus, who, as there, then remained no other enemy could acquire the title of Imperator, and earn the privilege of presenting the laurel in Germany alone. Germanicus persisted no longer, though he knew that this was all hypocrisy, 
and that through envy he was torn away from a ripened harvest of glory. End of section 3